Today, we have the very special privilege and honor of hearing from our very own Pastor Marcus for the testimonial, Why Jesus? So give it up, everybody, for Pastor Marcus. Hi. Okay. Please bear with me. I am a, uh, it says Pastor Marcus up there, and I oftentimes suffer from preacher's disease, which means that they only gave me seven minutes to do this. I'm going to try as hard as I can to keep it within seven minutes. I told Kevin I would. I was working on it. So let's go. All right. For the first 11 years of my life, I was raised in Compton, California. This is the 1980s. And I know for many of you in this room, you can't even fathom what the 80s were like. It was a time that did exist. Pretty awesome. No, I wouldn't say it was a pretty awesome time in Compton, California, because like many areas where they were predominantly African-American affected by redlining is is that once particular jobs left, there became this vacuum of the crack era. And for those who are not familiar with the crack era, it's a, a really good, uh, not really good, but it's a really fascinating time in history and socioeconomics where we saw one part of the country do incredibly well and another part of the country not do well. And being a small child in that, you just kind of pick some things up. You see things that are traumas that you're, you're not supposed to see. But I think my grandmother and my mom and their wisdom and my mom being a single mom at the time with, uh, you know, marriages not working out, did one thing, you know, the best they could. And they took us to church and they took us to church and we went to a Christian school and we would go to chapel twice a week on Tuesday and Thursdays. And we go to a Baptist church on Sunday and that was kind of our spiritual life. And then one day, probably being less, well, less than 10 years old. I asked grandma, hey, why do we go to church? Why Jesus? And she looked at me, dead my retina, in the classic black Baptist tradition and said, because I said so. (laughs) And that was it. Like, didn't question it anymore after that. Mom got remarried in 1991. We moved to Union City, California, and um, we just kind of stopped going to church after that. It kind of really fell off shortly after the 1992 L.A. riots when we had gone to church that Sunday. And a pastor had said some particular remarks that were, um, I guess, inflammatory towards my stepdad and kind of a blaming of our own people for what occurred. And then we kind of just stopped going to church from 1994 to 1998. I know that's when many of you were born in this room, which is crazy because I was in high school at that time. Um, I went to, uh, James Logan high school and I would say that my spiritual life was agnostic at best, that there were plenty of Christians there. And I would say many of them turned me off now upon retrospect, the way I look back, it was probably mainly just a bunch of teenagers who had underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes who in their immaturity were working out their faith. So it really, now that I work with teens now, it's no surprise that they're like, Hey, praise Jesus one moment. And then the next moment they are. Well, they're on the other end of the, the spectrum. And that just uh, adolescent goes. And then um, graduate, go to local JC, uh, JC, Chabot College. And one of the things that, um, that always stuck out to me is that I really do feel when you look backwards or when I look backwards, I don't think ever God like, let me go. And so there are always things that let me know that God was always there. You know, the fact that we did grow up in the, uh, you know, typical inner city in America and that there was a, Interesting left, there was a liquor store on one corner and a church in the other. And that there was this kind of great suffering and great hope. All of it existed within the same place. And I think that um, as I look back, I go, oh, 
you know, what was problematic was probably God saying, hey, I'm always here. The answer is always here. And in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of what's unideal, there's still hope. There's still light. And like I said, go to Chabot and I'm working at Hayward, uh, a middle school, Winton Middle School in 1999. And just out of nowhere, someone out of the Victory uh, Outreach community, well, I'm walking to Bart to go see my girlfriend. And just out of nowhere, he goes, hey, God's telling me to stop doing what you're going to do. Now, I must admit that I was probably really, really far away from God. And I had a girlfriend at the time. You guys put that together. All right. And that kind of like rocked me a little bit, but that would be kind of begin the spiritual journey. And like I said, God is always kind of speaking in popular culture. I remember watching movies like The Matrix and being like, I think this is a deeper movie or movies like Dogma or because I love hip hop. There was a hip hop uh, um, album by DMX of all people and hearing particular spiritual themes and just kind of always understanding that God was reaching out. It finally came to a head in October of the year 2000. When I would do the fundamental give my life to Jesus at, uh, on uh, Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, um, on Colorado Boulevard, which was pretty cool. You know, gave my life to Jesus, said the prayer, but I didn't take the altar call per se because I had a Bible, you know, again, raised in a Baptist family, living with grandma and aunties at the time. Bible's everywhere. What do I need to go in the back and get a Bible for? Moved back to... Um, um, that was in Southern California. I ended up moving uh, back to Northern California, going to Menlo College, wrestling, and then I found a, a wonderful faith community. But during that time, prior to me getting to that faith community, I probably became slowly indoctrinated and became full-blown, died-in, 1,000% Christian. Well, what I now know to be evangelical. And I'm not knocking evangelicalism, but I'm going to knock evangelicalism. I mean, I was all in unquestioned, you know, blind loyalty, just whatever it said, go. If it, it said this, then that was it. Whatever it said about sexuality, marriage, um, almost how to vote, that was it. And then 2008 happened and I ended up getting a job in vocational ministry. And that's kind of when things changed. You see, there's ideal and then there's reality. And I learned by working in vocational ministry that there's this ideal, this standard, but then there's reality and that most people fall in between. And then 2008 kind of really changed things. I would not be lying to you if I did not tell you that the uh, election of President Barack Obama and Prop 8 kind of started to shift some things in my consciousness. And I really realized that my first moments of deconstruction happened when I began to question Prop 8, actually, not Barack Obama, but it was Prop 8. And it wasn't that I was like totally 1,000% on board with same-sex marriage, but just in my mind, the way I understood the country and growing up as an African-American, you know, seeing the Judeo-Christian roots, but understanding that there's always a little disconnect between Judeo-Christian roots and the treatment of people. And with that being stated, I actually it said, I don't see how logically that I get it from a church point of view, how people would want to hold a traditional value of marriage because it's a theological concept, but that's very subjective. I just couldn't understand how the government at that time could uphold it, just from legal reasons. I'm like, I just, doesn't make sense to me at that time. And I probably began the, the deconstruction and working in vocational ministry was this awesome, awesome thing. But the longer I worked there, the longer that I began to kind of deconstruct some things, and ask bigger questions, and there were 
um, a lot of organizational transi uh, transitions and shifts, which landed me here at Spark, which is probably the best place ever because you work for like your uh, go to church underneath like your old boss because PK was there and Danielle. And um, well, I was asking questions then and they just allowed us to ask questions now. And it was like, well, why Jesus? I can honestly say, well, why not Jesus? Because Jesus was with me in my fundamental stage and the whole evangelical died in the wool and trying to hold the identity of uh, what's it like to be an African-American male, what's it like to be married, what's it like to be in vocational ministry, all these together. And now I get to take all of that apart. And when taking all of that apart, I got to still see that Jesus was still there. That I have this abstract concept called faith. It's not necessarily like you can't see it, you, but you can feel it. And it was abstract. And yet there was this very real thing called reality and questions and things like science and sociological constructs. And they all kind of converge. And I saw that Jesus really didn't change. It was the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. Which made me continually ask the question, why Jesus? And I keep coming to the same conclusion. Well, why not Jesus? Why not Jesus of Nazareth? Why not Jesus in, in Matthew? Why not Jesus, the Jesus I read in Mark, the Jesus I read in John? Why not the Jesus who the early disciples would give their lives for? And the reason why I say why not Jesus is because I totally respect and actually see Jesus in many other different faith traditions. But I say why not because literally why not? I, it, it, it's worked so far. <laughs> like I can't give you a better explanation of it's worked so far. So why not? And even though I've deconstructed and I'm pretty sure 20 years from now, I'm going to think totally different because my life circumstances are going to be different. But I'm pretty sure that Jesus, if the Jesus of the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth is the same, he can handle my questions. He can handle my doubts. He can handle my fears. He can handle my ups and downs, disappointments and questions. And I'm pretty sure he can handle your doubts, your ups and downs, your questions, and the unideal. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, Marcus, so much. Um, so Kevin and I were talking earlier this week and um, thinking a lot, continuing about this Why Jesus series, and as we wrestle with those questions and continue to allow space for all the questions and the wrestling, we wanted this week to have a conversation uh, with one another as well as with you all about um, one of our Why Jesus answers is because of how Jesus handles the question of power in the world. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight and kind of go through a few um, discussion points and rotate with that with the two of us. And we would love you to throw up hands and ask questions or say, no, we don't think that way or wrestle through it with us as we go. Okay. Sound good. We have not, uh, Kevin and I haven't joint preached for a while. So, uh, we thought, you know, we'll do it today. It'll be fun. We'll have fun today. Yeah. We just rotate the old gang in every once in a while, pull us all in. All right. Let's uh, pray as we get started. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for all of these opportunities to come together and to wrestle and, and be with one another and hear one another's stories. Thank you for the wisdom that you share with each one of us through one another's voices. And we ask right now in this space that our worship of you 
um, would be found in our study and in our discussion. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So today, our why Jesus, um, because in Jesus we see the power of self-giving love. So oftentimes, I think, this is where we can have the start of our debate, when we think about power in the Christian tradition or in the evangelical tradition, we often think about Jesus' power as something that we get to either wield or have access to. Have you guys ever had those conversations in maybe more traditional settings, right? Um, I think for me, it kind of comes like there's power in the name of Jesus, right? Like if, if you say the name or like Jesus himself is very powerful. Do you guys remember this t-shirt from like the eighties, right? Like bench press this. It's super, um, yeah. How many people do not recognize that t-shirt? Oh, wow. Really? See, we're getting old. We're so old. I'm just, I'm just pointing yeah, that out. Yeah, no, it's true. We're starting to date ourselves. I know. Well, we can date later and then we'll date ourselves. All right. Um, so I think, you know, I reckon, I think the first time, because I did not grow up in an evangelical context, the first time I saw anything like this, that kind of was talking about like raw Jesus power and Jesus isn't a hippie and he's like God, he's like this, you know, anybody. So uh, I think it was at Spirit West Coast, which used to be this big, uh, music conference down at Laguna Seca and, you know, thousands of evangelicals show up and they would buy t-shirts like this. And, um, and I had, I had a t-shirt that said danger youth worker on the front. Cause on the back, it had the passage from the book of Kings that talks about when they're teasing Elijah and they say, Hey, like go on up, you bald head, go on up. And then he calls the bears down and then they maul the 42 youths. And so that passage in my back was like danger youth worker, right? Like there's like this power that you could access. <laughs> oh, Look boy. it up. It's in yeah. Kings. Yeah, it's Bald in- head mauling of youth by a bear. Actually, um, Ari and I were joking about it this last week when we had a meeting, Rabbi Ari and I, and he was telling me how much he likes that passage and that he, you know, shows you that you should not tease bald people. And, um, and I said, Oh, I have a t-shirt. And he was like, no way. I, was like, I think I still have it. This is a complete side note. Um, it's not uh, central to this particular week, but if you take a look or if you take a survey really briefly of the past ways in which that power has been expressed specifically through the examples that Daniel has given you. Not only is it uh, about some sort of access that you have, but there's also woven into that streams of masculinity versus femininity. Yep. Um, yep. And all of the stuff that we have talked about regarding what has dominated the conversation around who Jesus is and who God is has been predominantly through a masculine, whatever that means, lens, uh, through a power lens, through a masculine lens. And so part of hopefully the work that we are all doing, uh, as Marcus so wonderfully articulated, is asking some bigger and deeper questions about, is that really what it means to, quote, be a man um, in that particular framework? So that's a side note to what we're going to talk about today and and, and discuss. But it's very much about power, right? And and can I get that power and can I have access to that power and can I wield that power for others, right? So there's like the ideas within Christian community of like, like come tap into the power available to you, right? And I think I've even been at conferences where, or seen books where sort of like pray this prayer, do it this way, and then you too can have access to the same power, right? Um, I remember I, I saw this even just on Facebook, like here, you will not get the coronavirus, right? As long as you declare this. Like, it has no power over me and my family. We have immunity over all viruses and diseases. We are perfectly healthy in spirit, soul, and body. Jesus is our shield. Amen. And, you know, if you just say that magic incantation, you can keep the darkness at bay, right? Um, And we can just presume that everyone who's gotten it either didn't say it right 
I mean, the theology should fall apart very quickly, right? Within two moments. We can't use Jesus's name or think about Jesus and power in that concept. It's been wielded in very damaging, destructive, and lethal ways throughout the world. What one particular phraseology that might help is power as currency. Uh, I have a particular amount of it, and I can spend it in a particular way in order to get some sort of transaction. We've talked about transactional faith before. Right. I spend power in this way. I get a result as a result of the expenditure of that power. So that might be a helpful framework of thinking. Right. I, I remember being with um, wonderful people whom I love very, very much, and they are very sincere in trying to explain to me that if I didn't pray specifically in this one way, saying it in this one way, if I didn't say in the blood of Jesus, by the name of Jesus and all of the things that then I would not um, be able to access protective authority in my life. Right. And it started to feel scary. It started to feel like I, I'm like, I'm for sure going to mess that up. Right. I'm for sure not going to say it the right way. Do I have to also like be balanced on one foot? Do I have, it felt works based, it felt like it was all based on something that I was going to do myself rather than Jesus could do with me and for me, right? That God would just love and care and be with me in the moments that are difficult. And I think the other challenge is that when we've lived, many of us in this room, one of the reasons why we share this space is because we've lived for more than five minutes and we've suffered. Or we've seen people that we love suffer. And we saw the mathematical equation fall apart very quickly. And when we got to those moments, it could either be, well, something's wrong with me. Again, I didn't pray it right. Or something wrong with that person. And, and, and in, in those moments, I think I felt, um, I felt my framework and my language unravel as well, right? I wake with our, our daughter, our youngest daughter now. I'll try to tell her, God was with you when you were hurt. So when she, she fell and, and skinned her knee and her side out here, all of the, the cute Sparker friends came in and like, she's hurt, she's hurt. And they all like zoomed up and one carried her. It was very dramatic. One carries her and like one comes over and helps. And they're all sitting around. There. And, and my response isn't, let's pray that God protects you from ever falling again, right? Like if we just prayed that right prayer today, you wouldn't fall. Just to say, do you see how God is showing up in this moment? And God is showing up in how you're, God doesn't protect us from getting hurt, but God shows up when we do. In, in the loves and lives of our friends. So I think when we talk about Jesus and self-giving love and that that's the power that's found in Jesus, it's not found in this magic incantation of keeping those things away, but it's found um, in something quite uh, wonderful. Um, I think too, when we talk about power in Jesus, um, we can see very quickly in the gospels that Jesus confronted the power systems of his world and of our world. And when I think instead of talking about there's power in the name of Jesus and that's somehow benefiting me individually or you individually, and I don't want to discount that that is also a reality and that, that we, have, we can pray and we can ask for all of those things. But I think that when we talk about the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus is self-giving love, it's actually quite, it's, it's a lot bigger than just a moment or a need or a protection even from illness it's bigger than that. Jesus is confronting the power systems of his day. Jesus is finding those moments. And even as it looks like Rome and the empire has struck back and that the empire of Rome is winning, that Jesus is finding in that moment and in the laying down of his life, he's giving us an example and modeling for us 
what it looks like to subvert these power systems. So we'd like to talk a little bit more about that today. I think when we talk about these power systems um, that we see all in our world, all around, whether it's race or sexism or poverty, um, when we talk about knowledge and wealth, and you know, Pastor Marcus alluded to so much of this so well in speaking about redlining and these systems that render people powerless in our world, where when we are combating all of those things, when we look at the person of Jesus, we find that Jesus is, is with us in those moments and also speaks truth to that power. Uh, Walter Wink wrote some phenomenal, amazing books on all of this. And he talks about Jesus and nonviolence a third way. And these were these quotes um, from also his work, The Powers That Be, Theology for a New Millennium. The gospel then is not a message about the salvation of individuals from the world, but news about a world transfigured right down to its basic structures. Violent revolution fails because it's not revolutionary enough. It changes the rulers, but not the rules, the ends, but not the means. I think when we encounter Jesus in that moment of self-giving love and how Jesus meets the power of empire, right? Jesus does not fight back with the same military force that's being brought to bear. He doesn't ask his disciples to run and go start a military revolution in order to kick Rome out. Although I'm sure that that was quite an attractive option for the day. There's a passage in Colossians where Paul talks about the crucifixion of Jesus in pretty amazingly stark terms. If you read it carefully, Jesus is the one who's being crucified. And the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul says, exposes the Roman powers, humiliates them, and puts them on display. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What is crucifixion supposed to do? It's supposed to put the victim on display, humiliate them, expose them, because you're crucified naked in public. It's an, an expression of power. And what Paul is saying in this passage, it's really stunning and breathtaking, captivating and challenging, is that it is Jesus himself, actually, by being crucified, that is flipping the script. It's actually Rome that's being put on display. It's actually their nakedness that is being exposed. It is actually their humiliation that is on display for the world to see through the crucifixion of Jesus. And again, what Danielle was saying, that is not just a, I have power now so I can get this parking spot, or I have power now so I can be safe. What Right. What these writers are talking about with what Jesus was doing with power was a complete subversion. I love this quote. It was a complete revolution. It wasn't revolutionary enough. It changes the rulers, but not the rules, the ends, but not the means. And, and, and in this Jesus movement, actually everything has changed. The rulers and the rules, the ends and the means, everything is upended as a result of what Jesus did. And what we are still grappling with and trying to figure out 2,000 years later is what ultimately was that in a world where we don't have quote-unquote crucifixion anymore in the same way. But we do have suffering and injustice um, and power structures that exist. We still have those things. And so what we're trying to do is reach back into that time and grab what was it about that movement and about that person and about crucifixion that completely upended those systems. And this is part of the reason why I think we're so dissatisfied 
with um, so much of shallow Christian teaching that just teaches, you know, the Lord's gym and, you know, praying for that particular parking spot or praying to be healed. All of those things are good. And again, maybe we don't want to... Maybe not the Lawrence Gym. Maybe not the Lawrence Gym. We don't want to take anything away from that. But what we see in the person of Jesus is so much more... And here's the, here's the word, cosmic. I mean, he, they use the word cosmos. Right. It's about this whole universe being upended as a result of what this Jesus movement did. Right. When we talk about Jesus and power, we're not talking about, again, something to be wielded, something to be grabbed hold of, something to be pushed onto others. Jesus and nationalism don't work at all. Jesus and white supremacy don't work at all because Jesus and power, the way that Jesus defines power lives into the truth of power is entirely different and distinct. Um, N.T. Wright talks about this in the day the revolution began. A new sort of power will be let loose upon the world and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it is still force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of the world, that's the cosmic aspect again, there lies self-giving love, which in obedience to the ancient prophetic vocation will give its life as a ransom for many. This self-giving love, there's power in this as opposed to trying to force, trying to wield, trying to meet might for might and trying to come up against those moments. And I think we've all encountered in very small ways and in big ways, these power systems or where we ourselves have participated in them and wanted to force that power to force our will onto another person. Man, if that just isn't so easy to fall into, isn't it? I, um, I don't want to, um, call out anybody that got stuck on social media. There's nobody in this room, but I saw this clip of this woman that was clearly having a horrible day on the airplane and she was being awful and she was kind of throwing a fit and she was saying, I'm not going to sit next to that screaming baby. And somebody, of course you guys, by the the way, if you're having an awful day, just be quiet because somebody's got a camera and your life's going to (laughs) change. So she's like shouting, like, I'm not going to sit next to that screaming baby. And then she says, I work for the governor. Right. And this is like, Whoa. So, you know, nobody cares. Um, and the flight attendant is just trying to help her like move to the other seat. And again, somebody's like, just, just filming the whole thing. And the mother is saying, look, she, he's not going to cry the whole time. And she's like, I'm not going to sit here. And I'm going to sing. And then she turns to this woman who's upset, turns to the flight attendant and says, what's your name? What's your name? And the woman tells her her name is like, oh, and gives her her badge number. She's like, you might not have a job tomorrow. That's what she says. The flight attendant, the flight attendant goes off the plane right? I want her off the plane. What? No, I just, I said, nope, off the plane, right? Because there's power being matched in this woman who's shouting all of her privilege. I work for the governor. I want your name and number. I'm going to have your job tomorrow. She's like sitting in coach people. I mean, there's just only so much power that she actually has. She's lost her mind. And then the flight attendant can just say, you go. And we all know that when that happens, you have to go, right? There's no, there's no arguing. Your power can't match power, right? It just continues to escalate until she did. She's on a leave um, of absence, apparently. Like they, you know, she has somebody's job status has changed. It's not the flight attendant. Um, and when you see all of those forces, we just see more hurt, more shame, more chaos. And the moment she starts to throw out power. 
her power gets matched and overcome, right? She doesn't get what she wants. She gets off the plane, even though that's not what she wants. I think that there's these moments where one-on-one, have you ever watched somebody de-escalate a situation because they've decided to sort of lay down their life and their own will in that moment versus seeing an escalation of the situation? I'd like to propose, uh, based upon that story, maybe some other anecdotes that you might have, that that kind of power is wielded in the absence of any relationship or covenant. Right, yeah. The reason why people posture themselves, create hierarchies, live into systems that are zero-sum, for those of you who know what zero-sum, you gain, therefore I lose, or vice versa. People lean into those systems when there is an absence of a covenant, when there's absence of a relationship, when there's ab- absence of like this mutual respect for one another. And part of what I think I see in this Jesus story is a hearkening back to the very beginning of the story, which is the person who does work for the government sitting in coach is created in the image and likeness of God right. just as much right. as the person who is trying to do their job as a flight attendant. And once you understand that reality, that dynamic, if you hold that to be true, then that should and will change how you behave with one another. Right. You, will, you will not yield that kind of force and that kind of power. It's, it's not too dissimilar to the clip that Omer shared two weeks ago regarding the, the theologian um, who talked about if my son got deranged and came through my home and was threatening my children, I would obviously want to protect my children, but I have a relationship with this person. And so that dynamic changes how I wield power and how I understand my relationship with others. Right. And again, if we're defining power with authority and brute force and will and I get mine, then the power systems are only going to continue to escalate, right? Um, I want my will and I don't care if you, and if you're going to try to impose your will on me, then we're going to try to meet that. I, I see a lot of this regarding the border crisis. And I know we talk a lot about this at, at Spark, but it's because there's a lot of people that are being impacted by it. Um, you know, we've got federal and state and local, right? You guys all went to school. And so I see these kind of power dynamics continuing to lay out within our, our local and national conversation, right? So the federal government has a desire to have a particular uh, policy, let's say, at the border. And then we have local governments here going, well, then we're going to be a sanctuary city. So then we go, okay, f- well, some of us are like, well, phew, I'm so glad California or San Francisco is a sanctuary city. At least we know that within our walls, we're going to be able to have some sort of humanitarian justice and aid. So then the federal government responds by um, saying, okay, we're going to deploy elite tactical agents to your sanctuary city. And that was just announced yesterday, two days ago. So, so you see that the, the escalation continues, right? Um, okay, so we're, when you're upset that we've locked up the children and the parents and separated them all here on the border, fine, then we won't let them in at all, and we're going to make them wait on that side. These, these things continue because we don't see anyone as human or holding in the image of God. These systems continue. And it's easy to go, well, all right, if they're going to bring the tanks in, then what are we going to do, right? And you can start to see the escalation push forward in that. 
But Jesus's power and the way that Jesus confronts power maybe looks a little different. And I think Walter Wink's done a great job on this in the third way, um, where he, he talks a lot about how Jesus's way is totally different and often creative and often with even some humor. So then this weekend, down at the border crossing, some wonderfully, in, you know, just they're ingenious. They started flashing on top of the border facility. Love has no borders. Let them cross from a distance with light, right? And then on the actual sign for the border facility, seeking asylum as legal, showed up and restore asylum as people are walking across. Now, everyone can see these things, right? There's no violence being done. The system's maybe not going to change at all. I hope that it does. I, th- I think that it will. But at least there's been some call for justice, right? There's been some call, not humiliating humiliating anyone, just calling out another way, a different way, maybe a better way. And I think when we see these systems, we get so discouraged and we think nothing can change. Like what's happening at the border here at Matamoros and the Remain in Mexico program is so horrific that, again, humanitarian aid associations and Warren Binford, who was here a few months ago, and others just this last week went public again with all the reports of saying how, how much harm is happening to children in these settings. It feels like we can't fix it, but then when you look at our history, we think, no, no, we've, we've actually seen the way of Jesus, radical nonviolence, the, the laying down of life, the power of self-giving love over and over and over again change systems like this. In spite of, of the power of the day, rather than meeting the powers with that brute force, we start to see people show up and say, no, we're going we're gonna to ask for rights for workers. We're going to ask for the end of child labor. We're going to ask for the right to vote. We're going to demand civil rights. We're going to demand the abolition of slavery. We're going to work through the suffrage moment. We're going to demand the end of the regimes. And we've started to see that even with all that's been going on in the Middle East, that people are pushing towards change many times in very nonviolent ways to try to see and expose the power of the empire. Um, and the cruelty of it. I think one of the things that force uh, attempts to accomplish is to say, I have power and you don't. And one of the movements that we see, one of the threads of this Jesus movement is, you can claim all you want that I don't have any power. But there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to strip away from me the power to express love and to express justice and to pursue the right way in which this world is to be lived. Um, I, don't think I, I, I don't think I have time to draw the straight line. Uh, I would make the argument, because we're in a Why Jesus series, and in, in the history that I've read and the things that I'm trying to grasp for and study, that all of what you see in those movements here, as well as the um, Declaration of Human Rights, all of that has an ideological genesis somewhere back in history that claimed that even though power is wielded in a certain way, those who are attempting to oppress don't actually have all the power. Even though they say that they do, and even though what they're trying to do is communicate to those of you who are oppressed, you don't have any power. There was a movement in the first century that said, no, you don't. 
And let me show you what self-sacrificial love, and I, you know that word love is just so difficult and challenging because you hear the word love and we think Hallmark and we just had Valentine's Day, blah. So all of that stuff. But what, <laughs> if, you, if you read what the Jesus movement was doing when it talks about love, it, it, it is a subversion of that balance of power that can lead all the way down through history to movements like this. Where does that idea come from? Where does that hope come from? Where, where does that audacity come from? It has to come from somewhere when all throughout the rest of human history, if you were oppressed, you stayed there. Of course, I don't have any power. They have the power I don't. And something happened. Something changed within the mindset of humanity. And I would make the argument that uh, the vast majority of all this, even though some would argue and say, but that's all secular movements. The Declaration of Human Rights is from the United Nations. Uh, I, I would make the argument through history and through philosophy that that had some genesis somewhere. It started somewhere, and it has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Well, and the historian Tom Holland out of the UK argues this specifically, yeah. that he's yeah. surprised, because he loves Rome so much, um, that he's surprised to find that when he does start to study Rome, he's got nothing really in common with the Romans, but that he is surprised to discover that he's much more... Um, at home in Christianity. And this is a bonus yeah. footnote for those yeah. of you who want to look up Tom Holland and his work. His famous, uh, his quote that really stuck with me is that uh, the modern man, the modern, modern humanity, basically wants Christianity without Christ. I want all the benefits that this Jesus movement gives us, but I don't want the trappings of the religion or quote unquote, whatever their perceptions are. And what he will write is like, but you don't have human rights. You don't have equality. You don't have justice. You don't have humility. You don't have compassion. You don't have the rule of law. You don't have any of those things without this movement from, well, dating back to Deuteronomy, go back to the Deuteronomy okay. series, all the way that Jesus carried through in the first century. Right. It's really astonishing to think about. Yeah, Jesus is a first century Jew living in an exiled state, even though he's living within the land of Galilee and Judea. Rome is in charge. Rome is taxing the Galileans of Jesus's day up to 90% of their income, right? The high priest of the day has to purchase that role from Rome. It goes to the highest bidder. The high priest of the day had to go and check their clothes out in the morning from Rome and turn them back in at night. Who's in charge? Rome. And that's why when they ask Jesus questions like, hey, what should I, who should, what should I pay taxes to Caesar or not? And his brilliant answer, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. We can unpack that for quite a long time. But, I mean, there's such brilliance behind that statement. Um, as we conclude and kind of move our way through, I think maybe we're all on board that the way of Jesus, of humility and of laying down one's life and the way of the radical way of nonviolence. And as Kevin talked about last week, the, you know, dispelling of hierarchy and starting to see that all are created equal. And in all of that, as we look at those things, we can say, yes, these things change systems. We have an ultimate hope that they will change the systems ultimately. And we see the ways that that works right now. Or maybe it's just the long view of history that we hope that that is true. But many of us in this room have already lived through a lot of those changes. I mean, just think about what's shifted and changed for the LGBTQ community within just a short period between Prop 8, as Marcus mentioned, and today. Things have changed quite a bit within our lifespan, right? So in all of that, um, 
how do we then think about this in our daily life? And Jesus gives us this really clear example of what it looks like um, to, to wield this self-giving love and power in our one-on-one settings. And from John 13, right? It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. It's an interesting phrasing, under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Fine, dunk me, I'll take it off, right? Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, this concept that we are to do as Jesus did, right? We're to follow his example. We're to put ourselves in the place of service of one another. It might sound like that's just rolling off the tongue quite easily as a Christian in the 21st century and and as a white woman in our world. But honestly, I don't believe that this is easy, and I don't believe that it was easy for Jesus either. He was living in a time of oppression. He himself was oppressed. Within 24 hours from this event, he will be on, in less than, he will be on the cross with the sign right above his head that said, King of the Jews, Rome's very big, like, punch in the air of, like, this is what we'll do if you try to have power. This is what we'll do to you if you try to have a leader. And Jesus is still choosing the way of servant here. He's still choosing that the way of love is somebody who lays down one's life for one's friends. I I think that the powers and the empires are afraid of this kind of self-sacrifice. I think we've seen a recent example of that. And Dr. Lee came forward within, you know, the empire of China and talked about the dangers of what he was seeing with the virus coming up. And he said, I cannot remain silent. And he spoke, right? And he was jailed and then ultimately allowed back to work. And now he contracted the virus and has passed away. Within just a moment of the announcement of his passing, there were memorials popping up all online and in person throughout China being written in the snow. This person who laid down his life, who who said the truth, is immediately being honored within that community, honored by those who might themselves fear the empire, right? Fear the powers that be, but his self-sacrifice has attracted 
the attention of the whole world. Walter Wink says that I cannot really be open to the call of God in a situation of oppression if the one thing I've excluded as an option is my own suffering and death. I mean, it's very much like I want, I want all the benefits of Christianity, but I don't want the actual Christianity. <laughs> that, that as we follow God and as we do so into places and realms of oppression in this world, we do so with the anticipation that it will cause us to lay down our life. And that scares the empire. That is very frightening because you see the whole world changed and shifted when Jesus did this with Rome. And it changed and shifted when others lay down their lives again and again and again. And T. Wright says it this way, that Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. That is how the revolution works. We get to be invited in and involved in this revolution. We, we get to push forward and to question the powers that seek to oppress and instead elevate the powers of self-love and sacrifice and considering others better than ourselves. Jesus promises us that anyone who comes after him will have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. This concept of self-sacrifice wasn't something that just popped into his head at some point, right? Crucifixion was a tool that the Romans wielded constantly to try to keep the Judeans, the Galileans under their control. One time they crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood and started nailing them to the city walls. But Rome does not stand any longer. That power that Rome wielded is gone. And ultimately, in the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, then, we see that the victory of God pushes through. The empire pushes through, and the self-giving love of Jesus starts to set things to right. I want to share with you one caveat to this. All of that being true and all of that being stated, the, the force of this Jesus movement. Over the last couple years, Some of you have communicated that you're tired, that to think about this movement and to think about yet another weight of self-sacrifice when you feel like you're in a world where you have to constantly self-sacrifice, that it can feel as if the constant push on this movement lays yet another burden upon our shoulders. And I just want to say to those of you who may be feeling that, if you feel as if, man, this like in accordance with the G.K. Chesterton quote, that this, this thing is really, really hard, and that's why I don't want to actually do this. I would encourage you and challenge you uh, and maybe hopefully inspire you to just do one thing. Celebrate that they did. Mm-hmm. Part of the tradition that we hold is to give honor where honor is due, and maybe you just need to sit and be held and be comforted And you can't lift another burden. But we experience the fullness of the grace of the work of our ancestors, um, our forefathers and our foremothers, the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself to this particular day. So we want to honor you and your place wherever you might happen to be if you're just tired, which we get and we understand. 
I would encourage you to consider celebrate and honor and thank and praise God for what did happen and the benefits that we do receive as a result of that. Because that in and of itself can restore unto you the power that you do have. In a world in which is, that is trying to strip you of all of that power, this movement is constantly saying, but you still have it. The Spirit still lives within you. Nothing can take away from you the ability to praise, to thank, to love, to extend grace, to forgive. No one, nothing, no structure, no hierarchy, no power, no sword can ever take that power away from you. So I would encourage you to consider that, especially as we come to communion. And this is not the end of the story, is it? The story is still being written. And in these moments that we are here and together, um, we remember that there's more than just this one moment. There's more than just this one moment. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, saying it to his, saying to his disciples, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table is open. All are welcome. It's not our table. And he's invited all of us here. So welcome and as we close in worship.